1: When I think of the name Billy Wilson, certain things come to mind immediately. I think of his sparkling career as director and choreographer of Bubbling Brown Sugar on Broadway. I'm still stunned by his ability to shift from Broadway and back again so readily into making masterworks for the concert dance stage. Wilson's works are in the repertory today of the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater, Dayton Contemporary Dance Company, Philodanko and the Dance Theater of Harlem. I'm all warm inside when I remember seeing the lush, rhythmic and striking choreography he created to the music of Dizzy Gillespie for his last work of concert dance, The Winter in Lisbon. A tour de force, Wilson was a passionate and celebrated dancer during his time as a soloist with the Dutch National Ballet and was later founder of the Dance Theater of Boston. For me... Billy Wilson is one of those names in dance history that is all too often reduced to a footnote that obfuscates his career and contributions to dance at home and abroad. I am thrilled that his daughter, Alexis Wilson, has stepped up and out to ensure that her father's legacy survives, all while sharing her own voice and lived experiences with deep integrity. Alexis Wilson's touching and deeply personal book, Not So Black and White, goes well beyond the commonly known information about her father's life and work to reveal her experience growing up as the daughter of this dance genius. This book is her memoir, which is at once both a loving homage to her father, a meditation on her life as the biracial daughter of Wilson and a Dutch ballerina, and a narrative that strives for reconciliation of the contradictions that shaped Alexis's life. Abandoned by her mother at the age of 11, moving through the worlds of ballet and Broadway and navigating her life journey with her father and his chosen life partner are just a taste of what shaped Alexis's experiences. An accomplished dancer, author, mother and more, Alexis Wilson does what she did not have to do in this book she pours herself onto the page so that others might have a lens through which to know who her father was beyond the footlights and a look at how race, class, art, love, and pain intertwine to create a stunning portrait of her life. This work is at once deeply personal and relevant to the history of 20th century American dance. With a foreword by actor Blair Underwood, not so black and white is not to be missed. Today, Alexis Wilson makes her home in Columbus, Ohio, with her two daughters and her husband, Byron. Well, I want to thank you so much for being here with me um, on behalf of the New Books Network and the New Books and Dance podcast. Thank you so much, Alexis Wilson, for coming and talking to us about your fantastic book, Not So Black and White. I want to say at the start of this that I really appreciate you um, not just for taking the time to do this interview, but for really taking the time to pour yourself into these pages. I think sometimes when we think about serious books, we think about academic work. And while this may not be considered an academic or scholarly work to some, the rigor and the integrity that you bring to the project certainly makes it a scholarly book to me. So welcome to the New Books and Dance podcast.
0: Thank you so much. I wish I could get a welcome like that from every moment that I'm doing it. I so appreciate that. Uh, Thank you for having me. I'm just happy to
1: be here. Well, you're absolutely welcome. Um, I want to know first, when did you know that you wanted to write this book? This book that is obviously so deeply personal and so much about your lived experience. When did you know you wanted to do this? And what led you to write this book at this time in your life? Mm, It's a good question.
0: Um, The night that my father died um, at St. Vincent's Hospital in New York City, we were all there, meaning I was there, my brother was there, Arthur Mitchell was there, my husband, Byron Stripling, a very dear friend of the family, Lorenzo James, and at one point, uh, Mr. Mitchell and I were outside of his room and just being quiet and he had already passed. And um, he asked me. He's known me since I was well, since before I was born, because he, you know, knew my parents, and then I was later with Dance Theater of Harlem. And he knew that I'd recently stopped dancing. And he said, "So what are you going to do now, Holly?" He always called me by my nickname. And I said, "I don't know." He said, "You should write your father's book. Write his his biography." And I said, "I will." And that's how it began. Um, but then it sort of morphed over the years into becoming more my story about growing up with my father and our life together and, and everything else. So that's really how it came into becoming. Um, and I gave myself 10 years to write it because I knew I wanted to have children. Mm-hmm. And now I'm in my <laughs> 55, 55th year. No, I'm in my uh, 13th, I guess. So it's taken me a while to fully get it out there. Mm-hmm. But that's how it started.
1: Well, thank you so much for getting started. And mm-hmm. thank you and thank you so much for persevering with this project because I imagine at times um going through those memories and experiences that you recount in the work could not have always been easy. And no. so I appreciate you for for sticking with it.
0: When mm-hmm. I think thank about you.
1: how 13 years might be used, your book is certainly a wonderful outcome to that process. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What were the unique challenges that you faced in writing the book? Um, because the work is so personal, I'm wondering if you ever really wrestled with what to write or what to include or how to talk about both of your parents. And what, if any, were some of the ethical issues that you might have faced in putting this together?
0: Mm. Um, I think I probably dealt with all of the above to some degree. Um I knew that it was going to need to be my very personal experience. That what I, that's what I felt compelled to write about, um, and I did struggle with that because a lot of it, um, a lot of it was new to me emotionally. A lot of things growing up, I didn't, I had never given voice to. Not only had I never given voice to it, but I hadn't even shared a lot of those feelings about Chip or my mother. I would say more importantly to even my closest friends, my closest girlfriends, never talked about it. So um, that was difficult. It was cathartic. Um, I call it blood work because if you if you're really committed to doing the real, honest work of it, it's not an easy process, and it's like kind of throwing up each time. And then, of course, that's mixed with all of the wonderful memories and the things that make you smile and laugh. And so. There is a balance there, I think, that helps to keep, at least in my experience, um, that helped to sort of keep me aloft and not completely toss me away emotionally. Mm -hmm. Um, I felt that I wanted to be honest, but there was also a a protective element there, mostly with my brother, who's my younger brother, and, and, you know... Even if you're in your 70s, he's still your younger brother or it's still your baby, your child. You know how that is. Um, so I felt a bit protective about him. I always, in the back of my mind, also in talking about my mother, um, just wanted to make sure that I was graceful about what I was sharing, you know, about my personal life. This wasn't um, an exercise to sort of... Drag my family's, you know, history or dirt through the mud. It really was, um, a commitment to just being honest about my own personal story. Mm -hmm. So I would say all of those things. Um, and for the rest, you know, it was just, um, trying to be true to my own story, you know, and anyone who sort of found more of a negative aspect to what it was, Mm -hmm. I would say they would need to write their own story. You know, I mean, you have to be true to what you feel you need to do. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have done it.
1: Thank you so much for your honesty and integrity in talking about the experience. When you say it was like throwing up every time, that's something that I can. I mean, that's a very visceral way to talk about your process. And I appreciate you for being So transparent about that, because, you know, sometimes for those of us who fancy ourselves writers or scholars, it seems like getting a book done is magic, especially Hmm. if you're like me and you're working on your first one. It's like. Somebody has a great idea and suddenly it's on Amazon.com. You you know, you don't you don't really think about the kind of emotional work as well as intellectual labor that goes into this kind of process. So thank you for being so transparent about that. I'm sure that's going to be a real gift to our listeners. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to say that many of the folks who listen to the New Books and Dance podcast are academics or dance scholars, as well as those that have a general interest in dance sort of writ large. Mm -hmm. So when you were putting this work together, who is the intended audience for this book? Or as I like to ask, who is this book for?
0: Hmm. Well, that's the question that you're asked 50 million times when you're trying to to pitch your work. And um, that's sort of a, I'm trying to think of a sh- the shortest answer to the question. Um, I, I had a lot of challenge with that in the beginning because agents would tell me that it's more than one book. Um They would say it's a book. It could be a book about age. It could be a book about dance. It could be a book about same sex parents, about abandonment, all of those things. So I think that the thing that was my Achilles heel at the beginning has really become my strongest point in that, and since I've self published, that now I'm able to utilize all those different aspects, those big, what I call chunky bits of my story to or for a specific audience. So when I'm speaking, I can tailor what it is that I'm talking about to, say, the topic of AIDS or the topic of abandonment or being biracial or the dance world or Broadway. So it's worked to my benefit, actually. Um, At the end of the day, though, I think that what I hope that people can walk away uh, feeling from the story is really that it's a story about family. It's a story about love and um, and that love not always coming from the most expected place. And it's about our ability and our choice to either reject or embrace what that is. So I think that family, be it non-traditional or traditional, because I feel I had a pretty traditional family in my non-traditional family. Um, I think that that's something that all of us can relate to.
1: You know, I love how eloquent you are in talking about this work. And what I really appreciate is um, sort of the openness of, of your your the way that you're talking about this. I mean, this is probably one of the most delightful interviews I've ever done. I'm just <laughs> I'm really enjoying this because I feel like your book is going to be such a gift, not mm-hmm. just to the dance world, but to anyone who who really believes in the power of family, Mm -hmm. believes in the power of love, believes Mm -hmm. in the power of art, um, and really believes in sort of a sense of perseverance Mm -hmm. and overcoming. So thank Mm -hmm. you so much for that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, I want you, if you can, to really describe for our listeners, what was your creative process in putting this work together did you develop a sort of daily writing practice Mm -hmm. um how did you you know as a dance person as a creative person yourself I'm wondering what your process was in putting the work together when I think about writing for me it's sort of like a scrapbook Mm -hmm. like I'm Mm -hmm. gathering all of these pieces and I'm trying to make a collage of some kind or it's Mm -hmm. like quilting Mm -hmm. where you're trying to knit together all these small pieces and threads that create an entire narrative. So Mm -hmm. if you could describe your creative process, that'd be really helpful.
0: Sure. I I find it so fascinating that you're insightful enough to link the dance background with the process, because that's very true. Um, What I did was, before I actually started even working on this specific work, I started doing writing practice, as you mentioned, for two years. I would get up in the morning at four, because I'm a morning person, and I used, Natalie Goldberg became my writing practice guru, and I used a book of hers called Wild Mind, and I would get up and do timed writing exercises, 10 to 15 minute blocks for like two hours every morning for about two years. And then when I felt like I sort of worked these new muscles that allowed me to kind of begin to go below a surface and also drudge up a lot of these things. Because, for instance, I might go, um, being in New York was, and go for 10 minutes without stopping. And it's incredible the things that come up if you allow yourself to let your mind get out of the way. So that's what I did first. And then... um, you mentioned sort of the idea of quilting i think that's a great visual because that's really what it becomes um the first chapter that i actually started was the winter in lisbon which is almost like the 11 o'clock number you know of the book um and then i kind of went back and then i went all over the place Mm -hmm. and when i first had what i thought was a finished version of the manuscript. That's how the structure was. The structure was very cinematic. It was all over the place. And I thought that that would be more interesting for a reader. Fast forward, after listening to um, several people that I I, uh, respected and heard, who had a question about the structure of my book, I completely changed the structure into a more linear structure that began and ended with a kind of bookend, and that actually read better, and um, and I think made it easier for for the reader. But basically, my ritual I'm creating is getting up at four in the morning, and that's that's also now you know before my kids get up, and they get up at six, so it's really only two hours. By the time you wake up and you get going, it's like you know an hour, hour and a half. But that's basically my writing schedule.
1: I appreciate you talking about that. And I love you talking about this process of doing the timed writing exercises and really cultivating writing as a practice, writing as a habit for two, for two years as a way to enter into the work. Mm-hmm. You know, dancers understand the need to engage the body in those basic exercises every day. It doesn't matter if you're getting on stage in three months. It doesn't matter, right. but you right. have to you have to get yourself to the bar, or you have to get That's yourself right. on the That's floor. It. And so, developing the kind of ritual mm-hmm. of that practice, I think, is definitely a through line that I'm yeah. hearing. But to
0: find what works for you, you have to discover your own clock. Like for instance, I cannot. When five o'clock in the evening comes, my brain is done. I mean, if if I'm under some kind of deadline, I have to do it. I get it done. But where I where I work best and when I'm at my best is early in the morning. So you have to find out what works for you. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's really the first most important thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Working in your sort of optimal time period. Yeah, and really, and really honoring that, you know. Yeah, it might not yeah. be someone else's process, but that's okay. If right, it works right. for you, if it's, it's moving your project forward, then you move through that. You honor that. Thank
0: yeah, you. yeah. We read all those stories about the writers who are up, you know, drinking in the middle of the night until four in the morning. That's not me. I had to finally give that up. That was romantic, but it wasn't very real. So. <laughs> so the morning
1: is my time. Listen, girl, it ain't me either. So I appreciate that, (laughs) especially with children. Um, Now, when I think about your father and myself as a dance student coming up, when I hear Billy Wilson's name, I think about Dutch National Ballet. I think about Bubbling Brown Sugar. I think about his work at Brandeis University. Mm -hmm. But what really sticks out for me is Winter in Lisbon because mm-hmm. I remember being oh maybe 16 years old and seeing that work
0: mm-hmm. and falling
1: in love with the color mm-hmm. the the movement vocabulary the the Gillespie music I mean it's 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 phenomenal it's fantastic it's sort of bigger than life so mm-hmm. in my brain when I think Billy Wilson I think bigger than life I think mm-hmm. Othello I think this amazing mm-hmm. kind of career but I wanted to ask, what do you think is the most surprising thing that those who have some familiarity with your father's legacy in dance will find in this book? Mm. You know, apart from sort of Billy Wilson, the star, Mm. what do you think the surprise is? What are those nuggets that a reader will find tucked in these pages?
0: Yeah, again, I think that's a really good question. And um, you mentioned Lisbon, ironically, because I think that more than anything, you know, my father was a very private person. So I think the thing that people will really be struck with is the elements of his private life, the things that he was juggling and wrestling with. Um, you talk about the winter in Lisbon, which was the ba- last ballet that my father choreographed before he passed. And in the midst of that ballet, he was dealing with chip, his lover of 18 years, his bipolar, and then what turned into becoming full-blown AIDS at that time. So, um, and I was there with him during all of that time, and we would be dealing with Chip and all of the, the craziness that surrounded his illness, I mean, you've read the book, so you know mm-hmm. things like, you know, escaping from hospitals and yes. taping his mouth and, you know, and then would have to go to rehearsal to create this ballet. And he had no idea how one step was going to lead him to another. And then, of course, it became one of the most, you know, celebrated ballets of his career. Yeah, and one of my it's also, by the way, so I think that's what people would be most struck by is knowing these pieces of his personal life.
1: Mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting, too, to consider how in the midst of all of that personal trauma and, and personal challenges and life change that he was still able to generate something that was lasting mm-hmm. and, and deeply beautiful but also the energy in that work. (laughs) I mean, I remember seeing that piece in Buffalo, New York, my hometown. Um, My mother bought me tickets to go see Ali. And I mean, that piece just brought the house down. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and brought the entire audience up. And so then to read the book and think he was dealing with all of that weight mm-hmm. in his personal life, but still able to generate that kind of beauty. It says something to me about the enduring legacy of the human spirit.
0: Absolutely. And I think it's a real Testament to his character as a man, as a, as a person. Um, I think that's really how he, he lived his life. When I think about my father, that's what I think about. Um, he was someone who always was looking for the beauty in things, even in the ugly, and appreciating the ugly as much as the beautiful, but ultimately extracting the energy, asking more, demanding more, um, because he believed in you, say, as a dancer. Um And that's why so many people just have, you know, continue to this day, have all of these stories that they share with me about how wonderful it was to work with him. He really touched people, inspired them. And the um, the inspiration, the lesson, the memory that so many people have attached to working with my father was that it was a larger um, experience. It was about the work and about the dance, but it became a metaphor for one's life. And I think that um, that's just, yeah, you know, that's just who he was. And I think that he would be very happy to hear that you would make that connection about him.
1: Well, thank yeah. you. Thank you so much for that. I really, um, I just appreciate your honesty and your transparency. It just feels so intimate talking to you and I appreciate this very much. So thank you. You're welcome. Um, okay. So let's, let's just get to the sort of, so what question, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Why? I mean, I I know this is your dad and your family. This is your personal narrative that you're bringing forward. I'm a dance person. I know your father's work. I love your father's work. I was very interested in your story, your mm-hmm. experience around biracial identity and growing up in this sort of artistic context. But so what? Right. Mm -hmm. If you're someone who doesn't know Alexis Wilson, you don't know Billy Wilson. um, You're sort of a dance enthusiast, but these names don't necessarily resonate with you. Mm -hmm. Why do you think it's critically important to bring your father's legacy forward and to perhaps do it in this way, which is also sort of a family narrative?
0: Um. I think, you know, for a few reasons, I think, um, again, I go back to in terms of content and how people, lay people, people off the street who don't mean, know me or my father from Adam. I think it goes back to the connection of humanity, um, that shared experience, whether it's, you know, abandonment or loss or grief or joy. Um, but as far as the legacy is concerned, um, it's important because, A, the work is so good, and it sustains. You know, I just recently reset one of my father's pieces, a solo work. Well, actually, two performers, one dancer, um, in a tribute to Rosa Parks. A fellow is called Rosa. And um, after all these years, and I tried to do my best to keep the integrity of the work, but the point is that at the end of the night, every night, it was a standing ovation. And I think that is the spirit of my father's work. I mean, I can reset it and all of that, but still, that's what that's coming from. So the work sustains, and um, and it's just important to keep that legacy alive. Um, we have to, moving forward, always have a sense of what preceded us, and especially for us, those positive influences um, we need to really hold on to, I think, probably more than ever.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Um So that's what I would say, Mm
1: -hmm. especially in a world today where it's so easy maybe to focus on the things that are negative.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. I think that, um, you know, also we're sort of doing battle a little bit until it all balances out with technology. And again, the human aspect of of who we are, Um, we're so kind of barraged. By all of the the technology and images and all of that, but it's equally important, maybe more important, to then really hold fast to those human elements, you know that that are shared. Maybe we we sometimes I think forget that that's important. Mm
1: hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm inclined. I'm, I'm inclined to agree. Yeah. I'm inclined yeah. to agree. Well, yeah. sort of continuing along that line and sort of knitting these threads together. The book talks a lot about certainly your family's experiences and and some of the sacrifices that were made big and small over Mm -hmm. time to maintain your family, to maintain Mm -hmm. a sense of um, closeness, togetherness, a sense of integrity, which Mm -hmm. I think really comes through in the work. Could you tie that somehow to maybe a larger conversation about dance? What does your family's experiences and sacrifices have to tell us about the landscape of concert dance today?
0: Um, I think that it tells us that uh, it's still that there's still value in keeping that alive. To me, this seems an extension of sort of what we were just talking about. Um, I think it's easy to sort of, in the scheme of so much other stuff that we're, we're looking at, you know, we're being, uh, things are thrown at us and i mean in terms of visuals and things like that i think it's easy for that aspect of the dance to get lost and all of it um but again i think it still has such a valuable and hopefully valued um place you know in our world and it's something that i continue to try to expose my, my own children to. One is a dancer, one is not. Um, but it's it's so important to keep that, well, all aspects of the arts alive. Um, and, uh, you know, it still becomes a challenge even more than ever since we're dealing with all of this economic challenge that we're dealing with. Unfortunately, as you know, the arts is always the first to go. And the irony of it is that in times of strife, and depression and uncertainty, that's what we need more than ever. But that's, I guess, a different show. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I would say, you know, we, we just have to keep that alive. Mm-hmm.
1: Thank you so much for, for tying that together. I think you point out the, the what I do consider to be a serious irony, right? The idea that the arts are sort of first on the chopping block and yet when we need inspiration, when we need a sense of the future, when we or we escape <laughs> or, or escape, when we need a renewed sense of vision, hmm. a, a reminder of who we are, our deeply, our deepest held values, we tend to return to those very, um, what I consider those things that are fundamental to the human experience, which are the things that are closest to the body Yeah. and dance is certainly, you know, right at the center of that conversation. Right. 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 So what I want to say now is that I've thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you. And if you ever write anything else that you think might be of some use to the New Books and Dance podcast, you have a friend in us. So please oh, just let us know. And I'd be happy to bring you back for another interview. Let us know what are you working on now? What can we expect from you in the future? Do you have anything coming up that you'd like to share?
0: mm. Well, you know, often when you're in the middle of the vortex, that's when you want to start a new project, which is what I'm feeling right right now, but I still have so much work ahead of me. Um, I'm supposed to be working on a one-woman show for New York. That would be myself doing a 90-minute version of my story, um, which has no shape yet, but have my first um, original producer and directress. And so we're beginning work on that very soon. My other baby project is creating the screenplay, um, of which I'm just, I'm so excited to, to begin. That's what I'd like to start now and, and, and might, you know, bit by bit. And already have, um, you know, a fabulous director who would love to direct that version of my story, Casey Lemons. Um, so working on that, but, At this very moment, I'm getting ready to prep for what will be the New York book launch, which was scheduled to happen the 29th of October. But, of course, Sandy hit that night. So that kind of knocked that out of the park. So now it's being rescheduled to May 13th. And I'm really excited about it because it will be like a kind of production. I'll have Arthur Mitchell speaking and Tamara Tooney and Maurice Hines. Um, Michael McElroy will perform. It will be partnered with Broadway Cares to make it a fundraising evening. So it will really be, I think, a really fun and and really um, special evening and a rooftop bar that overlooks the city. So I'm really looking forward to that. And hopefully you can come.
1: I would love to be there. That sounds fabulous. And I really um, am excited when I hear about the kind of other projects that are being birthed Mm. through you completing the Mm. book. I mean, this sounds exciting.
0: total child unto themselves. (laughs) They're each big projects. But, you know, it's fun. It's
1: fun. Well, I hope you keep having fun. Thank you so much for everything on Uh, behalf of the listeners to the new books and dance podcast. Thank you so much for sharing some of your time with us and know that again, if anything else happens, keep us posted. We'd love to have you back.
0: Well, consider that done. You're a joy to speak with. And it's my total pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. You've been listening to an interview with Alexis Wilson, author of not so black and white published by Tree Spirit Publishing. The book is available now through local booksellers and online retailers. I'm Takia nur and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the New Books Network Dance Channel. Thanks for listening, and keep on reading.